Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Now, I want to take a minute before we begin just to wish everybody the best in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. I know the fortunate masses of us are at home, many frontline workers are not, that lives have been turned upside down. So I just want to thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. So for those of you who don't know, I'm Ryan Driscoll-Tate, and our guest today is Christian Wright. Christian is an environmental and labor historian in Moab, Utah. He's a member of the Utah State Historical Society, the Western History Association, and the Grand Canyon River Guides. But we're excited to have him on our show today, though, to talk about his new book, Carbon County, USA, Miners for Democracy in Utah and the West. The book is out now through the University of Utah Press, and the book covers a forgotten history of coal frontiers and labor and environmental struggles out in the Intermountain State, something that is near and dear to my heart as an historian, as a researcher. So without further ado, Christian Wright, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm very excited to be here. So Christian, before we begin, uh, could you just take a, a minute or so and just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and where you're from? Yeah, so I, I'll try and honor that request. It's always sort of difficult if you're a writer to respond your whole life story in a little bit. <laughs> but I have had kind of an interesting life that I think has touched on a lot of the big issues in my generation in these times I've sort of experienced and be, been wondering about. I was born in 1983 in Atlanta, Georgia, and my family is kind of diverse. My mom is a Swedish-American immigrant. And she's sort of a liberal film critic. And my father is a lawyer from Georgia, lifelong Republican voter from an old, like, Southern plantation family. So I've seen, like, a lot of different sides of the world and what the world can be. I was a high school senior in the year of September 11th, 2001. I started college when the Iraq War began, and I graduated right into the 2008 recession. Uh, Since then, I've had a lot of weird and somewhat interesting jobs. And today I am sometimes an interpretive park ranger, sometimes a river guide and a historian living in Moab, Utah. And I basically like, I think I am like the exact characteristic definition of the INFP personality test on the Myers-Briggs test. (laughs) Like, I don't know if that's great or bad, but like I see and I feel things around me and I wonder like, is everybody just sort of like ignoring what's happening or are other people also noticing that like the guy bagging their groceries at 10 PM is like 80 years old and like wondering, you know, what's the story behind that? Or how many people do we know who have got like a difficult life situation? Um, or is that something that we care about and we're trying to address? Or is that just something we sort of ignore and we let people fall by the wayside? I've always been like Mm -hmm. pretty empathetic, uh, pretty interested in politics and pretty interested in history. And, you know, today is kind of an interesting time, like the world's sort of changing. So it's sort of cool to be part of trying to figure out where it's going and what it's doing. Yeah. And professionally right now, I'm in a town totally dependent on tourism that has no one working in it right now. And I'm trying to keep a river company going uh, while everyone's out of work. Right. And I'm trying to promote a new book I wrote about coal miners and unions and social justice in Utah. Absolutely. Well, why don't we go ahead and get started and tell us a little bit about where this book came from. Uh, How did you come to write this book? So it kind of came from a couple places. Uh, I first sort of encountered like the Utah coal story, which is this like, 1910s New Deal history of 
exploited, divided immigrants in an industrial town that's very concentrated, overcoming a lot and forming this sort of model of the new American middle class and a labor movement being in power uh, sort of by accident. I was recently laid off in Denver in 2008. I started spending a lot of time in the Western History Reading Room of the Denver Public Library. And I found a book that I thought was about something else, but it was sort of about this area. It was Nancy Taniguchi's book, Castle Valley America. And I was like, oh my God, like all the big questions that I'd cared about, like what's up with class inequality? What power do people have in their lives? What happened to unions? I've been thinking about that, like in the South where I'm from, the Mid-Atlantic where I lived. But those are pretty crowded fields. Like if you want to write a history book about those places, you're having a lot of people doing it. And here I kind of noticed, okay, like the museum and helper, this book, everybody's talking about like, yeah, and the union came in and things were great. And today, like none of the coal mines are union and people are sort of scared and losing their jobs. So it's like, well, it's time to update the history. What happened to that? Uh, another specific step that happened is while I was living in Utah and starting to live and work in Carbon County, I was doing seasonal tourism work and I was living at a ski resort in Park City, Utah. Uh, Hilarity ensues, and I'm like a lot of people living in a pickup truck in a parking garage all winter long. And me and my fellow bartenders are hanging out in the library a lot. And we read Alan Kent Powell's book, which is like the story of the union coming to Utah in the 1910s and 30s. And we're like, okay, we're in this like mining to tourism town, being like totally exploited, living in this super goofy situation. And, you know, what happened to those traditions so it sort of became personal at that point and i was like okay like this is something that i'm thinking about and i'm wondering about and um i noticed here's these libraries here's these archives utah digital newspapers exist and there are all these resources there so you know i kind of figured out like along the way that it's when you start doing something and you say i'm going to be this person and i'm going to try and do this that then doors open and people come out of the woodwork and help you do things like go to graduate school and get funding. So that's sort of how it started. And, and now it's a book, it's a real book, which is a big deal. Yeah, yeah. So for our listeners who might not be familiar, um, especially with this part of Utah, could you set the scene for them? What kind of place is this that you're, that you're writing about? Okay, so Carbon Emory Counties is East Central Utah. And this is a remote, lightly populated two-county area the straddles the transition between a region of forested plateaus and mountains and an arid desert eroding into the Colorado River and national parks. And this is a place that a lot of people sort of drive through or drive past. And you can, if you're not really paying attention, you can almost drive through Price, Utah and sort of miss the coal mining infrastructure because it's all underground. It's fairly inobtrusive. But this is like Pittsburgh in the arid west. This is not like the Mormon colonial covered wagon story. This is like immigrants from Greece and Italy and Japan working under oppressive conditions, rocks falling on their heads and killing people, being told if they don't like it, they can quit, coming together and overcoming that and changing the world they live in. So it's this sort of almost exception to what we think about when we think about like Utah history or Western history, but really, um, I mean, it's, it's defining like the West was developed through mining 
uh, Utah as much as many other places. And this is like a core basic industry that provides all of the power historically for the whole state and some of the other states. So, uh, yeah, that's basically that's basically it. Yeah. So while your book actually focuses more on uh, mining in the mid to late 20th century, which we're going to talk a lot about, um, could you give us a sense, though, um, of that earlier mining history that you just alluded to, especially around price and carbon? Yeah. So what, what kind of goes on is uh, 1883 is a big year in eastern Utah history. That's when the Denver rest the Denver, Rio Grande, and Western Railroad comes through Colorado, through Grand Junction, and goes up to Salt Lake. And at first, they were going to build through Salina, which is to the south, but they realized, okay, we're a steam-powered railroad, and the cliffs around Price, Utah are called the Book Cliffs, and they're sedimentary rocks, they're Cretaceous rocks, they have a whole lot of big, thick, comparatively easier to mine and efficient to mine coal seams in them. So they sort of changed their route. So that takes like these little teeny tiny mines that were sort of starting to open and not really very profitably uh, bringing supplies to a lot of people into like, okay, this is now the powerhouse for Utah. Before everybody in Utah got their coal from Wyoming and the Union Pacific had a monopoly on it. So now there's another seller in town and then there's proliferating smaller companies. So this now becomes an alternative and a major uh, source of the state's energy. There's about 4,000 underground coal miners at kind of like the 20th century peak of mining in like 1947. So these are like small company towns where a couple hundred people live, about 20 or so little mining communities in the hills and the cliffs above Price. And then Price, Utah is sort of like this central municipal city um, that has more commercial activity in it. And that's sort of the basic geography. Emory County to the south historically was the Mormons come and farm these little tracts of land where streams from the mountains come down to the desert. You can grow stuff. Uh, But the two counties have really since merged after these new power plants were built in the 70s. Everyone owns a car. People commute far. They're sort of sharing the same industry and the same identity today, I would argue. And I think a lot of people would Uh, That's interesting. I want to come back to that. Um, Before we do, were the United Mine Workers present during this earlier period? Were they able to build strength in the region and the mine towns and the mine communities of the Intermountain West? Yeah, so the the, the kind of state-by-state history is really interesting because everything's kind of different. Like, if you've sort of looked into, like, Western mining history or, or, you know, coal at all, you'll probably hear about things like the Ludlow Massacre in Colorado in 1914, and you'll hear about this sort of very difficult confrontation. Uh, Wyoming has a different story. They actually get United Mine Workers of America earlier in the 20th century than Utah does. Um, There's a a couple of big disasters underground that sort of help spur people to try and organize that. And then Utah has got this history of like simultaneous inspiration and failure throughout like the early days, like from 1901. And then 1904 and then 1920 there are all these times that people got together and said hey you know we're gonna try and get the union and there's other times when people didn't have any union but things were so messed up that people went on strike anyway with like no labor laws protecting them with no union giving them money and there were these local conflicts what all changes is in the darkest year of the depression 1933 there's 
two competing union formations in Utah Coal. And that's sort of when there's this summer of conflict. There are strikes. There are picket lines broken. And of the two unions, uh, the United Mine Workers of America sort of comes out the winner and organizes all the state's mines by the end of the year. So they were able to maintain power for how long? I mean, into the 70s or was it stunted earlier? Yeah, so uh, like there's this great uh, picture in the book uh, one I found and I'm trying to get better pictures because a lot of like the 70s and 80s history is still in shoeboxes under people's beds. It's not like <laughs> in the archives accessible to historians <laughs> right. yet. Yeah, I feel that. But, but like, you know, in the 1970s and in the 1980s, uh, a lot of people elsewhere in America were like, okay, the, the heyday of unions is sort of gone or, or whatever. Well, they're still doing like Labor Day isn't go have a barbecue alone with your family in your backyard. It's like there's a parade down the streets of Helper and Price and all the unions have their own contingent and people make floats. And there's like an elected Labor Day queen that someone's daughter and there's tug of war contests and like rodeos and carnival festivities for the kids. So this like sort of heyday of all the politicians are the Democratic Party. Former coal miners are now going to the state legislature. Uh, the union is like the big organization representing everyone. That's strong from 1933 up into the 70s and really into the 80s. But what, what happens in the 80s is markets change. Things get a lot more competitive. And these smaller non-union mines that opened in the 70s now start to dominate the industry and the union mines disproportionately close. So like the the symbolic thing like the last big labor day celebration uh was in the mid 80s um in price utah okay so i want us to get into the 1970s for a little bit first of all for our listeners who are the miners for democracy uh and second their story is often one that's told about appalachia uh, or appalachia we'll get hate mail for that if i mispronounce it uh, but how does that story about the miners for democracy the united mine workers in the 1970s uh connect to uh, the west yeah, so that's what's like uh, really new and fresh about the book. Like there's a couple books about the Miners for Democracy movement in an Eastern context. And, you know, a good way to describe it is think about the 2016 election. And everyone's got like their thoughts about a 2016 election. And like you could look at Hillary Clinton as sort of like the establishment candidate that the power structure supports. And here's Bernie Sanders, you know, bucking the system and sort of embarrassingly calling out the party's record. Well, imagine that Hillary Clinton was so mad about this that after winning the election, she had someone pay assassins to sneak into Bernie Sanders' house and murder him along with his wife and his daughter. That's what happened in the United Mine Workers of America in 1969. So the, the heroic labor union with empowered members and active locals and people who spoke their mind starts to go away in the 1950s when markets change and 300,000 people lose their jobs. Also in the 50s and 60s, there's new, more efficient underground mining machinery, which means all of a sudden people are breathing in a lot more dust. And that's where the big black lung disease epidemic comes from. So in the late 60s, uh, people get fed up and a lot of people don't know their history, but like every single coal mine in the state of West Virginia was shut down for weeks in early 1969 because people refused to work and they went to the Capitol 
and they sat in the balconies and stared at the legislators while they started to talk about the first ever black lung compensation law. So along with that, there is a critique of the union leadership. The guy running it, his name is Tony Boyle. He's sort of like the technocrat guy who was always at John Lewis's side. And now he's a president of the union and he's super duper corrupt. He's making like secret retirement accounts for all of his top guys. And people are getting mad because as the coal mining organizers are sort of running into walls in the 50s and the 60s, they're losing a little bit of the share of union tonnage and the union mined coal is funding the retirement program for all coal miners in America. And that whole structure was never adequately funded to begin with, and it gets into more and more trouble. So you get people's getting their claims denied. Someone who's worked 30 years in the mines, oh, well, you didn't do this thing and this thing that someone in an office in Washington, D.C. said you have to do. So now you're no longer eligible. So people got pissed. So the Miners for Democracy, it wasn't like people had this great idea, hey, let's Let's run against the entrenched, powerful president of our union and put people who like work in the mine and have high school educations into the executive offices. They did that because people were dying and people were ripped off and they were sick of it. So in 1972, uh, Arnold Miller and his lieutenants win the international president, vice president and secretary treasurer position. And that never, ever happened before in the history of the labor movement. By, you know, by the 70s, it was like, OK, the sort of heyday of, of hard labor fighting was gone and everything was polite and people wore suits and sat in offices and had expense accounts. So this was like kind of upsetting to the labor establishment. They were a little freaked out. Like, what if other people did this? So what goes on in the West is most of the Miners for Democracy activity, like the leaders, the biggest organizations that's all going on in Appalachia. There's reflections of it in the West. And that's where it's so important because throughout the 70s, that's where the majority of coal tonnage production moves. Uh, today, as, as you're aware, there's about a dozen and a half strip mines in Wyoming and, Col and uh, Montana that produce as much coal as every single mine east of the Mississippi River, like, like half of the country's tonnage. So the union realized, hey, you know, this is where things are going to go down. Like we can we can build this great democratic union where everyone's elected and we make the Constitution better and things are more fair. But does it really matter if all of a sudden you lose control of all the tonnage? If you can't successfully organize these new mines, your benefit programs are going to suffer and your power to win a contract is going to suffer. So uh, the West was approached by Miners for Democracy organizers in the East. And it was sort of kind of written off as like, okay, like we're going to talk to these people and see if we can start something. But most of it is sort of like Tony Boyle country. Like his brother is running the whole district that's in Montana. Uh, people in most of the Western states were sort of more isolated by geography. Like if you look at Colorado, there's like, people hundreds of miles apart in different coal mining areas because the Rocky Mountains kind of made the geography weird. But Utah is like the most concentrated area of coal mining. It's like West Virginia is in two counties. Everybody knows each other. They're like drivable commuting distances from all the mines to each other. People live in one county, work in the other county. 
And that's where you've got like locals like Kaiser Steel with like four or 500 miners there. And these were the big company towns that were still alive. Steel production kind of kept them going. And that's where this sort of organic Miners for Democracy movement starts. And it begins with really women, people's wives and spouses and daughters who were not quite as sort of like trained by a corrupt union to sort of like defer to the power structure, they start speaking out. And people start writing letters to the editor. And uh, a major character in the book, Frank Sacco Sr., is is super duper cool. He's one of my heroes because he is like the international representative organizer who goes out and he's going to organize the mines. And he starts seeing like, okay, I can't go to this mine and ask them to help me with this organizing drive because they're all mad because their contracts being messed up and there's secret stuff going on that's messing with the whole fundage uh, funding structure for the the healthcare plan. So he actually publicly resigns his opin- his position, gives up his big salary and becomes a rank and file organizer and then other people join him. So in the big election in 1972, uh Miners for Democracy narrowly loses Utah by a very small margin. So about half of everyone sort of comes to say, hey, let's give these reformers a chance and see what they can do. Yeah. You know, you alluded to gender, and that's actually a really important piece of your book. Could you actually talk a little bit now about how race and gender plays into the argument that you're making? Yeah. So that's like, I'm mean, super key. Like, we experience the world through our identities. And around the world, especially in the United States, some of the biggest factors that shape how we live and what our options are, are what is our racial background? What is our gender background? So, uh, you know, Carbon County has, I think, often sort of celebrated its diversity. And there's a sense of like, we're from all over the world. You know, we're from Italy and Greece and Yugoslavia and Finland And, you know, then sometimes they'll throw in like the slightly more racially edgy countries and Mexico and uh, Japan and there's some African-American miners and people celebrate that. Like being a historian today means you get to watch VHS cassette tapes. So in the mid 80s, there's this conference of rank and file miners in Price, Utah, and some of the leading activists who happen to be women, one of them mentions in the going around introductions workshop. Oh, yeah, well, you know, we didn't really have racism in Carbon County because we were so diverse. And it's like, okay, that sounds good. But, you know, the last minstrel show publicly advertised and positively written up in Emory County was in 1972. That's pretty late. You know, and experience does matter. Identity does matter. So that kind of complicates things. Uh, you know, on the one hand, for a lot of people, if you are a historically disenfranchised racial minority, the union being there actually means a lot. Like if you are a Mexican-American in eastern Utah and you're working in a unionized coal mine, you're going to be bringing home a lot more income than if you're going to maybe one of the small non-union uranium mines opening down south, or if you're just living in Salt Lake working a random job. That's probably going to be your experience. And there's a really interesting civil rights movement going on, a Chicano movement in Utah. And a lot of the leadership in eastern Utah is from people who are living in these coal mining families. And they're sort of inspired 
by the United Mine Workers of America. And there are issues like, okay, there's not a whole lot of Mexican-American representation at leading levels of the union. There is some, but not a whole lot. So people were sort of trying to broaden their influence in politics, in civic life, and in the union. Uh, as far as Mines for Democracy goes, on the one hand, like some of these racial minorities are really interested in the union that helps them. Like in Western New Mexico, uh, they are disproportionately taken advantage of Navajo and Mexican-American coal miners. And they're the backbone of the big organizing drive at the McKinley mine in the early and mid-70s. But then if you go to Black Mesa, where on the Navajo Nation, there's a very large strip mine. Um, Arnold Miller, who's this new, totally inexperienced executive manager, is working with this big national union and some of the people in it really don't like him and some of the people in it like him. And one of the guys who's been around for a while and is like helping him out, working with him well, is the head of the local in Cayenta. At the same time, he happens to be a white man running a local that's like 90 plus percent Navajos. And there are things he is doing that the people who work with him are not happy about. So, you know, what do you do? Do you, you kind of like support your ally and say he's a great guy? How do you take people's questions seriously? That makes things a little more complicated than the, the simpler narratives we want to believe. Yeah. And you have the whole section, too, also about about gender relations as well. OK, so like so women have always been essential to coal mining throughout the history of the world. And a lot of that's in ways people don't think about. Like, yes, before the mid 1800s, women mined coal underground in England and made up a major portion of the workforce. Today, women are a very large percentage of strip miners in Wyoming and in Australia. But for coal mining to function, there were always women cooking food for coal miners and washing their clothes and producing new generations of coal miners and raising them. So if you Google like American coal miner, you're going to see a picture of all these like kind of tough men with like smeared dust on their faces. And this begins to change in the 70s. In 1974 in Utah, the first women coal miners are hired at the height of this energy boom that takes it from like, there's about a thousand coal miners left in 1968. Then the energy booms, there's over 4,000 1982. Then it crashes and a third of everyone is laid off in a year. Uh, the height of that boom, 1981, there's over 200 women mining coal underground in Utah. And their, their experience is super cool. Not only do they form a advocacy organization called the Lady Miners of Utah that does everything from participate in the broader uniform process to try and help other women miners get access to training and protective gear they're not really given fair access to. But that group, which was part of a larger nationwide group called the Coal Employment Project, kept really excellent records. So I spent two weeks at the archives of Appalachia in Johnson City, Tennessee, and you're reading letters from women in Wyoming and Utah writing in saying, what's going on? And they write poems and they keep minutes of their meetings and they say what we learned so like the miners for democracy movement officially disbands in 1973 and it's it's hard to find rank and file voices in archival records after that 
the official United Mine Workers of America records kind of stop around 77 in Penn State. So through women coal miners, I was able to get this whole different, deeper window into everybody's experience. And that's super relevant because we think about feminism today. We think about people who are successful women professionals. And we don't think about what does it mean to be like a working class woman trying to figure out if you're going to wait tables for peanuts or work in a nursing home for peanuts or actually challenge people in your community to have a well-paying industrial job to provide for your family. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So a super inspiring story and uh, surprised me. I learned about the Lady Myers of Utah by reading microfilm year by year, issue by issue. And it just pops up in a way you don't get in a keyword search. And all of a sudden there they are in the newspaper. Out West are these uh, lady miners, as they're, as they're calling themselves, related then to women's groups that are forming out in Appalachia at the same time, like the, the Coal Employment Project, for instance? Are they networking with each other? Are they getting to know each other in some way? Are there organizations forming? So they have, an, they have a really interesting relationship. Uh, the Coal Employment Project starts in 1973 when a woman lawyer is part of a public research group with other lawyers and people who care about things like conditions and mines and environmental damage. They go on a tour of a coal mine and the guy's like, yeah, 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 come on, we're going to show you the mine. And then one of them happens to be a woman and they say, oh, wait a second. Uh, you know, you can't come in because women aren't allowed in mines and the men are superstitious. So they start being like, well, what the hell is going on? And they figure out there's like, there's equal employment opportunity laws that say if you are mining coal on federal land or selling to the Tennessee Valley Authority power plant, you can't discriminate based on gender. So this group kind of forms from these women who are lawyers, but they're from coal mining families. And then they're sort of partnered with statewide groups of like working women miners. And there's a collaborative relationship, but there's also tensions there because in the kind of headquarters in the East, you know, they, they're good at like writing letters and getting funding and talking to magazines and press and filing lawsuits. But over time, there are some concerns by some of the working women miners of like, wait a second, like, okay, we all go to the national conference. We all get the newsletter. We meet each other. We learn from each other. But, you know, maybe we want more of a say in the organization. And how that played out might have actually been not the best of all possible worlds in the later 80s, the the founder of the Coal Employment Project, Beijing Hall, is sort of like pressured out of her organization. And I think that was a big loss for the group. As far as uh, the state by state history goes, it was really cool. Uh, the, the 70s feminist movement had a very egalitarian ethos. And it was like, okay, you know, form a chapter of a, a statewide group and figure out how you want to run it. So in like Wyoming, there's a super loose network of a couple women who can like give a phone call or get some advice if they need help. But in this like very community organization, rich carbon and Emory counties, Utah, they form like a, a big formal organization with like a membership structure and dues and, uh, you know, bylaws and everything. And they get very organizational about it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Even the way in which those movements are developing differently within the different states, as you mentioned before. Could you talk a little bit about the changing relationships between uh, miners and their employers during this period? Yeah, yeah. So so things changed a lot. So 
like the, the short version of like the history call is there's like this dark gilded age of like horrible conditions in the 1910s and 20s. Then the union comes in in the 30s and 40s and things get better. Uh, miners become more powerful at work. And nationally in the late 40s, as soon as World War II is done with, it's like every single year there's a big long strike and what's going on is john l lewis at the height of his power is shutting down national coal production to win a strong pension and retirement program for miners and that's that's a big deal that's like five hundred thousand people and all their families yeah so that's like the big peak but as that's going on things are changing the new machines like continuous mining machines and later long wall mining technology that starts to come around in the late 40s that means that the markets are going to get a lot more competitive and john l lewis kind of sees the writing on the wall and sees like all these little commercial mines starting to disproportionately close and he says okay look the way we the union coal miners are going to survive is we're going to work with the employers we're going to buy the machinery and Darn it, it's better to have 100,000 coal miners working under good conditions than half a million people working under crappy conditions wondering if they're getting thrown out of a job, right? So that that's sort of the deal in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, that also dovetails neatly with an increasingly entrenched authoritarian attitude among many longtime serving union presidents who haven't been in the mines in many, many years and really don't want to stop wearing a suit and sitting in an office and getting paid well and doing this fulfilling, intellectually rewarding work and getting interviewed and negotiating problems. They don't want to go back to the mine. So they kind of hold on to their jobs. Meanwhile, coal mining is hyper competitive still. The, the plan that we're going to stabilize the industry through mechanization doesn't work because this goes down first in, in southern Appalachia. Uh, Consumers, including very importantly, the Tennessee Valley Authority, they have an opportunity to decide who they're going to buy coal for. And they go with a basic financial logic. We're going to buy coal from whoever produces it cheapest for the taxpayer. And that sounds great. But what it means is when hundreds of thousands of people lose their jobs and small mines are exempt from most federal safety laws, you can get a couple people together and some old machinery and start a small crappy mine under substandard conditions and those stop proliferating everywhere. And and that's when things get dark and like union organizers and the owners are starting to fight and tipples are getting blown up and people are beaten up and some people are killed and dynamite is being thrown around. So that goes down. By the 70s and to the 80s, what really changes is the small non-union mines that were always kind of peripheral, all of a sudden, with the energy crisis, with the new power plants opening in the West, those guys have access to money now. So you're an entrepreneur and you're not just having to have this like crappy mine that's unsafe to work for. You can go buy the latest equipment. And as the coal miners union is losing power nationally, all of a sudden, instead of being like partners with management, figuring out the best way to work for everyone, they're at each other's throats. And there, there is a 110 day strike in 1977 to 78 for three months. Uh, there's another three month strike almost in 1981. 
So this starts to drain people. And that kind of allows the non-union miners to say, hey, you know, we don't have a union, but look, we're kind of safe now. And isn't it nice to not have adversarial conditions all the time and not worry about whether you're like working for the man or not? And really, if someone's a supervisor and somebody's sick and the supervisor helps out and does some of the work, does that just mean the company's more healthy? Like maybe all those old work rules they were put in place for a reason. Maybe they're really not what we need. So, you know, if you're like 29 years old, if you're 30 years old, you got a couple kids, you just moved to some coal mining boom town, you started this career and you saw that like, man, those coal miners were on strike like for months and they were all on food stamps and poaching deer to survive. Like you don't want to have to do that. So you might say, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you guys are there. You know, thanks for being the union, making things better. But I don't want to get fired to have to go on strike for months. And that's when non-union mining now emerges. Before, there were always a couple people who were sort of socially, really almost like pariahs on the periphery of the union coal companies. They were like, oh, those guys over there. Now those guys are like, hey, we're speaking the language of freedom and opportunity. And, and they kind of become an ideological force. So Carbon County, as the most multiracial, multi-ethnic, Democratic county voting state in Utah or county in Utah becomes a Republican voting county by the 2000s. And that's put in motion by the decline of the United Mine Workers. Yeah. You know, there's so much that resonates in this book with the present day. And I know this is a history and you're providing a historical analysis, but would you be willing actually to walk us through a little bit about your thinking um, just in terms of social justice, climate justice, the relationships between workers and the environmental movement um, during this period and this moment, even today, there just seems to be so much to say about this. Oh man. Well, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of lessons in this book. Like I wrote this book not so I could be a tenured professor in some university or more likely some adjunct professor living somewhere they don't really like wishing he could be a tenured professor. Like I wrote this book for people like me and people like people I know who want to know what the hell happening is to read. And there's all kinds of lessons in there. Like some of the lessons are sort of like the old models don't really work. Like, 1930s and 40s. Hey, you guys want to join the union? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, we're the union now. Let's go get a contract. That was quick. Today, you read anything about someone trying to form a union, you're talking about, oh, they threatened to close the whole place down. Oh, everyone who joins it gets fired. Like, uh, I did a really awesome interview with Mike Dalpez, president of District 22 uh, in November. And he was like, you know what, like the National Labor Relations Board's the only process we have, but it's it should be called the Anti-Labor Relations Board because it's so hostile. So that model isn't really working that well. And that's okay. We can talk about things not working. It's not being bad to the labor movement to say, you know what? Our history is contradictory and painful and embarrassing. Let's dig in it and see what we can learn. So I'm hoping we can look at the 80s a little bit more nuanced and not just say, oh, yeah, the unions fell apart or whatever. The unions were corrupt or people all decide to like Ronald Reagan all of a sudden. Like, let's explore that. Let's figure out what happened. Uh, you know, a couple of specific lessons. One, 
Uh, I had no idea this book was going to be so much about healthcare. Uh, institutions have generational lives. Uh, forming a labor union, being the president of your local in the 1930s and 40s, that was really different than doing that in the 60s and 70s or later on. It used to be, I would argue, more about what's going on at our workplace. We got a safety committee of three guys who can say, this is unsafe, let's stop doing it. If you get fired for nonsense or your your check is off, we can sort it out. It starts to become more about, I've been serving in office in this position for over a decade. I'm responsible for managing a multi, multi multi-million dollar benefit program. So if that's what you're doing, and that's who's looking at you and writing you letters and who's reelecting you, if somebody like goes on strike because things are totally messed up at their job, and all of a sudden you're not getting those funds into the union because they're not producing coal, are your sympathies going to be with the people on strike or the fact that you're running out of money? Like this complicates things. This changes the mission. I mean, do you care how democratic your car insurance is? Like if the point of a union is just to provide something for people, it doesn't really matter. But if the point of a union is we're going to not just have human beings be drones at their jobs doing what they're told, but we're actually going to have us a sense of power and growth and say in our jobs, it's going to be a different thing. So, you know, that was cool. I started this study. I, I heard you read the thesis. That's super cool. I, no <laughs> I did. Yeah. But you read it or not. Uh, As somebody who writes about coal in the West, I'm I'm definitely one of the people who are going to read it. It's a, it's a small world. So <laughs> we'll band together. That's, that's great. But, you know, I started looking at, hey, what happened in the 1970s? You know, how did you guys inherit this New Deal world and and let it all kind of get screwed up? And the sort of perspective I have been trained to think, which sort of comes from those who follow the labor movement and left wing circles is, you know, the, the rank and files got to fight back and the leaders were kind of corrupt and they made mistakes. Then doing the thesis and going back to the same archives and saying, well, let's look at the New Deal and what happened afterwards. That changes it. You see, you know what? A union isn't a union. A union is a historically constructed thing with relations of power and strengths and weaknesses that change over time. And the the structures that were put in place in the late 40s that began to get brittle and fray and change the whole point of a union, that almost set people up for failure. Like the, the big takeaway from Miners for Democracy is like, well, you know, what if uh, a smarter rank and file guy was elected or, oh, what what did Arnold Miller do wrong? Oh, he should have done this. He should have done that. Like, really? Like, like who on this planet could go to a strip mine in Wyoming and say, you should pay us 40 cents for every ton of coal you mine so that I can subsidize healthcare for all these guys in Appalachia who you're competing against and putting out of work. Like, like that's, that's the issue that this back of unions broke on. That's what people fought tooth or nail. They'd say, hey, all right, whatever. I don't believe in it, but we can negotiate about contracts or wages. They would do that. But employers small and large, uh, they fought the union in a life and death struggle over the healthcare fund. Uh, you know, as far as like a final lesson, it's it's interesting environmental politics, fossil fuels, climate change, and mining coal, right? Like 
that is super edgy stuff. When I was starting to do the study, my peers and coworkers in tourism work and river guiding, uh, great people, often very liberal, would celebrate the environmental heroes. So we go read Edward Abbey and and the guy who got arrested disrupting the oil and gas lease was a hero, you know, and it was easy to drive through price and and think, oh, these people like Fox News. Oh, aren't they short-sighted, right? Well, like the thing I learned is like, we all have our opinions and our biases, but like the coolest thing you can do, maybe the most radical thing you can do isn't to be like so far on one side of the spectrum or the other, but to actually take people seriously and try and listen and learn from them. What would happen if all these low-wage tourism workers living in their car realized, hey, you guys in Huntington are like, you own your own house. You're not all being gentrified. Like you can retire. Like you make $20 an hour. Why don't I make $20 an hour? What if we learned from each other? So the coolest thing about doing history was like, I have not begun to do it as much as I like, but I did get to do a few oral history interviews over the course of this. Like, like when do you sit down with someone who's different than you ideologically, who's a different age, and you're not having an argument, you're not trying to convince them about anything, but you're just trying to ask them questions and listen to them and understand each other. Like if we could do that, and if we could stop being divided against each other, we can figure all this stuff out. Like my model for climate change is 1942. In 1942, there was an existential threat to this country and this planet. Planet, It was fascism. We said, you know what? We got to change how we live and work to fight this. And we rebuilt our infrastructure. That's when those big metallurgical coal mines in Eastern Carbon County opened. That's when we built these new steel mills in California and in Provo. So if we have a discussion about what's going on, we can figure out how to build what we need, but we can't do it if we're talking past each other, we can't do it. If the people whose communities and lives and investments and retirements are now threatened and they're going to be cut off and giving nothing like, yeah, of course those people are going to hate it. Like when I started working as a student conservation intern in public lands management here in Moab, I was paid $75 a week at age 30 in a graduate program. The the interns for management at the Little Canyon coal mine the same time are paid $19 an hour and they get time off for vacation. And I couldn't get a day off to do a three-day river trip instead of a two-day river trip. So, you know, how are you going to win anyone to the idea of changing their economy if that's what it means? So, you know, really, I think what whatever your, you know, your issues are, whatever you vote on, like, everybody's put in a box. You want to say, we should all have guns. And you get a little pat on the head and a little psychic trophy every time, you know, someone speaks about guns being defended. Or you say, oh, we don't like guns. We got to ban the guns. And you feel good whenever you vote for whoever says what you like. Meanwhile, there's piles of bodies everywhere and no one's addressing the problem. Like we got to come together and say, look, we got different values. Let's figure this out. How can we do it? And that's, that's the future. It's not Fox News and climate change denial. And I love Donald Trump because at least he makes elite Democrats uncomfortable, which he does to his credit. 
And the future also isn't let's write people off and, and say they're ignorant. Like we can't be in our own boxes anymore. We got to climb out, walk around on the planet like living human beings and listen to each other. Yeah. I mean, the one thing you just said that I would want to plug is is oral histories. For me, talking to some people with wildly different political beliefs uh, around their kitchen table and hearing their side of the story um, has been one of the most satisfying things I've done as a researcher. And I would just encourage other historians uh, who study people who are still alive or study movements that still exist uh, to get out there and actually talk talk to people more if possible. That leads me to ask you actually what was the most surprising thing about this book for you or this research for you when you were working on it? You mentioned healthcare, the role that healthcare played, but besides for that, is there anything else that really surprised you? Um, gosh, uh, you know, maybe like learning, like there's this thing, this expression, you know, we go on a big journey, we come back to where we started and we understand it for the first time. Like, like that was it for sure. Like, this whole thing about unions and and having a voice in the workplace, like you can't look at this like year by year, like the change is generational, like, like miners for democracy was led by people who started coal mining in the late forties and were from a certain social world and their world had overlapping commonalities with, but was different than people who came of age during the Vietnam war and during Watergate and during women's liberation. So every generation is going to approach the world a little bit differently. And if you are disturbed by injustice or inequality or bullies running the world, you want to get out there and change it right away. But the pace of change is often very slow. Things are structured and they crack and they break very slowly. Things are set in motion from way back. Uh, that was like probably one of the biggest surprises. And just for me personally, like, you know what, like the big surprise was like that it became a book. I mean, how many people have a big goal and they say, I guess I want to do this, but I'm scared. What if I try and do it and it doesn't work out? Like, you know, it was kind of edgy to be like, hey, I, I think I'm a historian. I read all the time. I want to write a book. I want to go to graduate school. How can I do that? Who will help me? Like, there's this expression a friend of mine has that I love. Like, at the end of the day, we should build a long list of oh wells and not a long list of what ifs. It's a bummer that we have a weak social safety net in this country and and nobody wants to leave their job with healthcare with their family to actually start a new business or try their idea out or switch careers like everybody's scared. And that is a material fact. But from the standpoint of like, when you're old, and you want to go to sleep at night, do you want your life to be a list of things you wish you did or wish you tried? Or do you want to say, Oh, I tried that didn't work. I tried that didn't work. But you know what, that one thing I really want to do. And I tried like, yeah, I made it work. And history is in a weird spot right now, like the traditional models of going to become a university professor and, and getting paid well, like like that's going away. My dad spent all of his summers on Cape Cod sailing because his father was an economics professor at UVA and UGA, and they had months off of vacation a year and they could rent a house and their kids could sail boats around the ocean. Like that world's going away and the future of history is unclear, but there are paths out there. You can 
develop skills, become a writer, write a book and balance that with some other career that you're also involved with. And that's scary to do. But if you're like, this is who I am. This is what I care about. This is what I believe in. This is the question I have. And you want to solve it? Like, there's ways to do that. And there's resources out there for you. Yeah. You know, Christian, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, so before we go, let me ask, what are you working on next? So uh, I have a messy backyard. Like <laughs> I'm a high energy person and I have a lot of things going on at once. And I am I am learning through my life experience what it means to plan things and to balance things. I'm reading Brené Brown's book, Dare to Lead, right now. It's very inspirational. I'm learning a lot from it. Uh, my really cool project that came out of this is I'm working uh, right now on the administrative history of Arches National Park, where I worked for five years. And this was really cool. Like I was a park ranger. I was given the educational talk at the campground. I was at the front desk. I worked in the fee booth. I rescued people. And I had all these big questions about like, wow, what does it mean for a town to get an extra 600,000 visitors? in a two year span because other people who live elsewhere advertise it so much. Like what's the carbon footprint of international tourism? What is the point of national parks? Like, are these like basically scenic strip mines to make money for people? Or is there something deeper and more real here? Like what was everyone's intention when they started creating these things? Like, and then who tried to manage it? Who tried to grapple between like the altruism and limited resources and greed and passion and preservation? So it's a wonderful project. Uh, I'm reading the Times Independent newspaper from 1896 onwards. I'm up to 1912. Issue by issue, it's very well digitized. Um, our, our Park Service headquarters is sort of under this coronavirus quarantine. But right before that happened... I spent some very wonderful weeks in the archives. I got to take pictures of everything I want to see. Now I'm taking notes on it. So that is a wonderful, wonderful project. That's a door that opened from this book and from my own work history. The other thing I'm doing is I'm very inspired by film. Film is the most powerful medium for telling a story that we have. And I have decided to invest my money in a really nice camera and audio equipment, and a brand new fast computer. And I am making a documentary about my people who are river guides and tourism in Moab in a year when they might not have a season. And I am taking interviews and oral history that I learned studying my neighbors and applying that to myself and my community. And I'm going to make a film about it. And I'm very excited to be trying something new uh, to be giving it a shot. And hopefully I can reach some voices, raise some questions, inspire some discussion through that. So those are the two big projects right yeah, now. That's excellent. This is Christian Wright talking about his new book, Carbon County USA, Miners for Democracy in Utah in the West, which is out now through the University of Utah Press. Christian, thanks so much for joining us. You are super welcome. Thank you for doing the interview. And I look forward to, to seeing it and sharing it with folks. Yeah, no problem. You take care. All right. Have a great day. I'll see you later.